You're at the Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub where we enjoy conversations with people who are engaged in the world of coaching. Welcome to this week's edition of the Coaching Inn. I'm Claire Pedrick and today it's amazingly wonderful to be in conversation with Alison Jones. Alison, welcome. Hello, Claire. It's good to be here. I hope it is amazingly wonderful. You've really picked me up now. It is amazingly wonderful. So Alison's just published a book called Exploratory Writing, Everyday Magic for Life and Work. But you are so much more, Alison, than this book. So tell us a bit about your journey to writing this book, your kind of a, 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 a little nugget of your life journey. And then I've got so many things that I want to ask you. <laughs> well, I'll do the nugget first. So, I mean, I guess the short story is that I am a publisher. Always have been since you know, sort of. That's my whole career has been a publisher, and when you're a publisher, what you're doing is helping people write to perform. You're making the best book that you can out of somebody's intellectual property and their insights and ideas, and that's really powerful. And you know, best job in the world, obs. And it, one of the things that you notice is that people, as they write, realize the work it's doing for them. They realize that it's helping them shape their ideas. And and it sort of occurred to me quite belatedly, I've been doing this for 30 years now, but I suddenly realised, you know what, you don't need to be writing a book to benefit from that. It is something magical about the process of writing that helps you get that sort of um, interstitial space between what's out there in the world and you're talking about and what's going on in your head, which you kind of really can't get a full sense of. And I guess it is a little bit like a coaching conversation, but we don't have coaches on call 24 seven, but you can always grab a piece of paper. So, (laughs) so that's sort of where it came from. And instead of just talking to people about publishing books and how you put together a really good book, which is what I tended to do in my career, this is a bit of a departure and it's just, do you know what? We have this super powerful, lightweight, cheap tool at our disposal. Let's start using it, people. Yeah. And you see, Alison, if you use the definition of coaching that I love, which is that people feel heard and get new insights into their own stuff. You've just written a book about enabling people to feel heard and get new insights into their own stuff. I think. I I, honestly, it is. It's a form of being able to coach yourself. And of course, it's all about questions as well, because we know our brain just reacts to questions, can't help it. So I think it's quite liberating when you realise that not so much coming up with answers, your job is to come up with good questions. (laughs) And then you can kind of trust your brain to do the rest. I think that's quite powerful. Absolutely. And I love, you know, you go from being an explorer, which is a, you know, and sense making and inquiry and transformation. I'm reading it going, this is amazing. Yeah, do you know what? I am super proud of it. It's uh, I'm not gonna not gonna lie. I really love this book, and I've, I've kind of put my heart and soul into it. And it's getting really lovely feedback. So, what more could you ask for as an author? So, what's your dream for it? Oh, it's great. It's, I I would love people to see this as just something that you do in work and life. That when you are itchy with a feeling that you can't quite explain, or you think something's wrong but you can't explain why, or somebody's annoyed you (laughs) your first instinct is just to grab a piece of pen and paper and just sort of write oh that's really interesting I'm feeling like this and I think it's because and and see what comes out Mm. and very few people do that Mm. I still have to remind myself to do it sometimes but I would love to take that so it's such a simple message but I've been talking to people at schools in organizations and 
when they try it, they go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And it's always there for me. So that's, that's my vision is this just becomes a really lightweight form of re- reflective practice that's kind of accessible to anybody at any time. And yeah. there's no hoopla about it. You know, it's not performative in any way. It's just a way of checking in with yourself. Mm. And a particularly good use of anyone who's a stationary addict and has many notebooks. <laughs> yeah, do make sure that you recycle all the paper. <laughs> I do say, though, I, I really don't recommend a notebook for this stuff. It's too permanent. Mm. I think when you're doing real exploratory writing and it's really raw and you can write stuff that you would never say to anybody uh, and it could be it, it, can, it could be massively inappropriate you know it could be all sorts of things it could be it could be hurtful it could be self-pitying it could be all the stuff that you would never really say out loud to somebody and you have to trust that you are going to rip up that stuff and dispose of it it's not going to go anywhere and it's certainly not going to stay in your beautiful journal where you write your deep thoughts <laughs> it's it's just a stage up from that yeah <laughs> pre-processed yeah. Yeah. And in the same way, and in coaching, you let it all out and the coach has a Teflon mind and a Teflon memory and it's all, it's out. And then you move on to the next yeah. bit of thinking. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that trust is so essential, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And the foreword is by Jilly Bolton. Yes. Who's, reflective who's the only other person that I've read a really good book on reflective writing from? <laughs> She is a legend, isn't she? Yes, yeah. I interviewed her on, on my podcast, Extraordinary Business Book Club, and I, she just is. So, I mean, every single word of that book, you, you kind of want to stop and linger over. It's it's mm. so well thought through. And she's been doing this. In fact, she was the one that taught me it's six minutes, not five. <laughs> I, used to, I used to set a timer and write for five minutes, but it always takes a couple of minutes to, to kind of warm up and get going. And, and yeah. Jilly has this super simple solution, which would just do six minutes. It's mm-hmm. not really any longer. It's just one more minute, but you get so much more quality stuff out of the end. It's amazing. Yes, she's phenomenal and um, and just a, an amazing person, human being as well. Yeah. Yeah. So as you were writing, what insights did you have through the writing process? Because normally you're encouraging other people to write a whole book. <laughs> I know it is funny, isn't it? And do you know, one of the, uh, I always hesitate about telling people this, but it's, I think it is important to, to share. I, I got stuck. I got really stuck with the structure. Um, what I do is help people find the way to structure their ideas and share them. And so there's something really cripplingly sort of self-conscious about trying to structure your own material, knowing that this is what you do for a job. And I got so stuck that I had to actually send the manuscript to one of our development editors and say, look, this is a bit embarrassing, but would you would you have a look at this and see if you can untangle it for me? And bless her, Alison Gray, who's, who's one of our great um, development editors at Practical Inspiration, sent it back going, you know, this is this is terrific. And obviously it's a hot mess. And, and here's some here's some ways that you could structure it. And of course, I didn't actually do either of the ways she, she suggested, but it, it helped me see the way I could do it that, that mm-hmm. worked, which is sort of jumping off one of her ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the insight to answer your original question is that you can't necessarily do for yourself what you do for other people. And that reaching out for help is often what you need to do when you get stuck, because you just there's the limit to how long you can keep sort of moving forward and banging your head on the same bit of wall. I'm a great believer when I write a book of printing it out at a fairly early stage and then going at it with red pen, scissors and glue. Yeah, that's, that is great, isn't it? I've, I've done that before in the past. It does get a bit messy. <laughs> Very messy. 
produces large amounts of recycling yes Um, and if anybody walks by or shuts the door quickly you're in trouble (laughs) you are because you can lose the whole of that chapter that didn't have a name (laughs) and the other hot tip actually if anybody is writing a book and and wants to sort of just be able to do this more easily is if you use word styles you and then with headings one and two you can you can collapse the whole thing and you just kind of zoom up as if you're in a helicopter and you're looking down on it and you can just see the territory the whole territory Mm. so that helped too but I was still stuck It's like, it's like, isn't it? Coaches aren't perfect either. And we might facilitate other people to do thinking, but that doesn't mean we don't get stuck too. And I think it is about applying it to yourself because you have the distance with someone else and you're in the professional environment. And the number of coaches that I've worked with as a publisher, and and I I qualified as a coach as well. It's one of the the things that helps me, you know, draw out what what people want to say. And, And often they'll turn around to me and say, I do this for other people, but I couldn't do it for myself. So, yeah, a bit of humility, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Being a bit human. So becoming an explorer. Say more about that. It's one of your chapters. It is. And in a sense, it's the overarching metaphor for the whole book, because exploratory writing is the phrase that I used to, to talk about this kind of writing. I sort of feel, you know, when we talk about writing, we think we know what we're talking about but it's generally about communicating with people. It's generally about having a fairly clear idea of what you want to say and and just telling people about it. And I wanted to use that phrase, exploratory writing. Um, It's not just reflective or therapeutic, you know, it's all these things. It's just when you don't actually know what it is you want to say, it's that kind of writing. (laughs) It's the writing that helps you work it out. Mm. So then that metaphor informed the book, really. And I thought, well, you know, what do explorers do? They don't know what they're going to find. So they go out with a really kind of open, curious, adaptable, flexible I think having humour as well, I say in the book, is quite important because you know, that sort of resilience that you need when you unearth something and you think, oh, OK, that's how I feel about that person. Interesting. So <laughs> mm. um, all those, um, you know, being prepared, obviously you don't need much kit to write, but just, you know, having a sense that this is an adventure. It's a micro adventure in your day and, and you approach it with that sense of what's over the next hill and, you know, um, an openness and a sense that you don't necessarily know, even if you think you know the answer to something, you might be wrong. That bridge might be in a different place or, you know, whatever. So that that's really the thinking behind the explorer metaphor. Mm, going into unknown territory. Mm. But not and, being lost there, just that yeah. sense that you are building a map as you go almost, that you're finding yeah. out what's there. And that requires courage. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the explorer mindset. Um, and it does, it, it's, it's also when you lean into something and you notice that this is not what you would like of yourself, <laughs> you discover something that frankly, you're not proud of, or um, yeah, this is a mistake I've made how many times now, you know, there, there's things like that. Mm. And it does take real moral courage, I think, to acknowledge that to yourself. But what's the alternative? Continuing to delude yourself? <laughs> I mean, there's no joy in that either, is there? Yeah. Yeah, that's very direct, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) One of the other things, partly I think because I'd been thinking about it before I read your book, uh, you've got a section on sense-making. And sense-making and meaning-making are connected, aren't they? So what did you, what meaning did you make of (laughs) sense-making? 
Well, for me, it's it's almost you you turn it into a story and you put those relational phrases in. You know, this happened and then and perhaps because and but instead of that and and you all those phrases and the ways that you actually have you you have to put facts experiences into relationship when, when you're writing long form narrative or short form mm. narrative, and that is very very helpful because it helps you to see connections and assumptions and it also helps you see where your assumptions might be really flaky <laughs> and, and it forces you well it doesn't force you but you it allows you more easily to to look at what you've interpreted the sense that you have made of the experience that you've had and acknowledge that actually there are other ways of constructing that that mm. your interpretation of it might not be infallibly right who knew you know mm. and that's really helpful as well because it just helps you do that separation between the thing and your experience of it and your interpretation of it and and just so often we forget that that gap exists and we fuse ourselves with the experience and our interpretation of it so mm. writing it down forces you to make choices about how you interpret and once you, well, they're there then you can read them back and you can interrogate them and you can actually have quite a lot of fun forcing yourself to come up with three different explanations for this. <laughs> and all of those things remind you that your experience is not the world. Mm. Mm. So building from what you see, the real observable data. Right. I love that. The playing with the, the playing with different meanings. Yeah. And we know this, you know, we know that there are so many different interpretations as to why somebody was short with us this morning. You know, we know that, but in the moment, you forget and you assume that you know why they are being like that. And, yeah. and you, you know, you don't necessarily. And I think also when um, when we're in the midst of change and disruption and things are happening and there's that sense of overwhelm, we can feel as though we don't have much agency. We can feel as though it's all happening to us. And one of the things that you can do when you're writing is to, to do that sort of um, getting control over a situation by writing into it so that you can create sense out of it you can uh, understand it better and that gives you a sense that you are not so out of control as you thought you were and that's powerful I think for your well-being. Mm. Nancy Klein says that when we're experiencing a high level of emotion we can't think mm. so what you're describing is is getting it out on the paper is right. is a way aren't you of 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 having something else hold it Yes. And it can start in a very raw, emotional, incoherent yeah. state. And, mm. and I think that's what's really powerful, because you would never sit down and start an email with a kind of howl. <laughs> but you can absolutely yeah. do that. You can yeah. start by, you know, writing in letters a foot high. I hate this or, you know, whatever it is that you're feeling, just expressing that. And as you carry on writing, then the more rational part of your brain kicks mm. in because it can't help but because you're writing which is quite an advanced human thing to do <laughs> mm. and that's really helpful mm. so our body is processing as well as our mind right and that's why doing it on paper is so helpful there's a real kinesthetic element there mm. Mm. the other thing that came to my mind as you were talking Alison was that thing from Brene Brown who says this who talks about the story I'm telling myself yes Exactly. Which connects into it, doesn't it? It's the story yeah. I'm telling myself. Exactly. And it's the Frankel thing about, you know, in that gap lies your freedom. Only when you mm. spot the the space that you have between the stuff that's happening to you and how you choose to interpret and react to it, there's something really profound about that. And writing for yourself for a couple of minutes allows you to access that space. Yeah. Easy access to your mind. Mm. 
And it is a, a mystery in there, isn't it? You know, it's associative and you can only ever have one thought at the front of your mind at one time. And what that can mean is that a very limited number of thoughts go round and round and round and round endlessly. And once you start writing, it's a more linear process. And so once you've got them out, you've got them out and you don't keep keep writing them over and again and again. Mm. There's a sort of forward progression with that. And what can feel like so for example, take, take a very trivial example. Very often I will feel that I have just way too much to do and I'm overwhelmed and I can't handle one more thing on my plate. And you sort of spiral down into that. Ah, it's all too much because it's all going around in your head and, and it's competing for, for your kind of scarce attention up here. As soon as you start to write it down, you start with a sort of, oh yeah, this is awful. There's so much to do. I've got to do this and this and this. And, and of course you, you list about sort of six things and, and you sort of run out of steam a bit and you go, well, actually, that's it really. That is it. Uh, and and that one can wait. So <laughs> it helps you just get them out and see the reality, which is often very different from how it feels when it's just in your head and, and you you can't um, organise the things in sequence because there's only one thing at the front of your mind at any one time. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting view on the capacity of the brain. Mm. I I often get people to use a pen and paper to draw in a in a coaching conversation. And I can remember one day just pushing my blank sheet of A3 paper and a, holding out a set of pens to somebody who said they were overwhelmed. And they wrote down a whole load of stuff and didn't say anything. She, and she's just going, oh, let me, and off she goes. And it was probably 15 minutes, actually. And then she looked up and I said, so what do we need to do now? And she said, oh, that feels better. Yes, and I exactly. Said, so the page is holding the stuff now. And then she was easily able to look at the page and go, actually, yeah. we need to, this is the bit that we need to work on because the rest is safe because it's arrived on the table. Yes. And it gives your brain permission to stop holding onto it and running after yeah. it in case it disappears. Yeah. I wonder whether we put too much pressure on ourselves. I think writing developed primarily as a kind of external brain, as a sort of external hard drive. It was, <laughs> well, it, it, that's what it is, isn't it? Because brains are quite susceptible to death <laughs> and um, forgetting things. And yeah. you know, they're just, they're just, they're great. I mean, they're amazing, but they are, they have their limits. And when you write things down, you know, the Sumerian merchants who, who develop writing were, were enabling them themselves to, to manage transactions over time, across different places, when different people bought the next, you know, those those things make visible stuff that is less useful when it's held in our heads. Mm. And when you think about the origin of writing like that, I mean, I, I guess we like to think that writing was designed so that we could tell our stories and so that we could, you know, create epic poems. And well, yes, and really, when it started off, it was just about bartering down the market and there is still something really functional and mm -hmm. helpful about that ability to um to get something down objectively yeah yeah so transformation I always like transformation when I'm looking through a book so tell us about writing and transformation as you an were probably adventure very, yeah so you're probably very disappointed to realize it was mostly about metaphors <laughs> I have to so, tell you something funny about metaphor. 
Oh, go on. Then you tell your think, funny thing about metaphor. So, you know, so, you know, my thing is simplifying. I, I noticed the other day that there was a course on metaphor and it was 32 hours long. And I'm thinking, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> what would you teach for 32 hours about metaphor? Because actually metaphor is the thing that emerges for the person or that you notice them saying, or that you might gently offer. And I think I could probably teach 15 minutes on metaphor before I ran out of anything else to say. <laughs> so I'm very interested to know what they're teaching in 32 hours. Sorry, back yeah. to metaphor. Yeah, I don't spend that long on the metaphor in the book, but it, but I think it is really, really important. And what I've noticed, so when you write a book, very often the way in for the reader, as as an author, you have a body of knowledge that you want to impart to your reader. Your reader does not have that knowledge. And so the way that you bridge that gap often is, is through metaphor or analogy, perhaps is a better way of saying it. You say, okay, you're familiar with this? Well, it's a bit like that. Mm. And that just gives the person an access point and a level of comfort with the new information that you're imparting. So metaphor is really foundational for anybody who's writing a book. And also, so I, I used to teach on a creativity, innovation and change course with the Open University Business School. And we did sort of quite a lot of work on metaphor there. And what's really interesting is, is watching people who are completely unaware of the metaphors that they're using. Um, and I remember, I think I talk about it in the book, talking to a woman who um, it was almost, she was almost shaking. She was very physically uh, anxious and upset. And she was talking about spinning plates. And you almost don't hear that metaphor because it's such a cliche but actually, when you stop to think about it, what an awful way to spend your time, because it's pointless as much as anything. Clearly, at one of those places is going to fall at some point. And I mean, it's just miserable. So if that is the way in which you are understanding the work that you're doing, no wonder you're going to be stressed and anxious and unhappy. So I drew that to her attention and she was right enough that <laughs> a pretty rubbish way of thinking about your work. So we were just exploring, as you say, you know, what comes up for you? What, what are other ways? I find it very hard not to suggest metaphors because they come at me all the time, but it's, it's so much more useful if it's the other person's metaphor. And I managed to sit on my hands and, and she came up with a beautiful metaphor about her because she had lots of different parts of her job. That was the problem. She was trying to manage all these competing priorities. And she, um, she came up with the metaphor of a tapestry that the different, strands of her work she it was her job to weave them together into a really pleasing pattern and that sometimes some would be behind the the the, uh, the material and other times they'd be in front and they would work together and actually not one of them would would work on its own you know they, they had to be and she you could see the physical change in her as she kind of absorbed that as a way of looking at her job so I think people well, there's a couple of different things, isn't there? There's a sort of um, awareness of the metaphor in use and, and the impact that that is having on you. And then there's that deliberate choice to explore other metaphors and see which what you might draw from those. And I guess the third part of it is noticing what metaphors other people have in use. And if you are finding somebody is being an idiot and you don't understand why they're being so dense about something, perhaps it's because they have a different metaphor to you. And if you can surface that and, and work together on a, a shared metaphor, then then you're in business. Mm. I'm really interested because as you were describing that, I was thinking that the plate spinning one, you know, the only way is is broken and noisy. Right. Whereas the other one is soft and it feels lovely 
and, and it's can, purposeful and creative. And you can make a mistake and it doesn't badly impact the tapestry. So so building on a metaphor, just thinking right. out loud about a metaphor that somebody else brings up is another way, isn't it, of really yeah. enabling insight. Yeah, absolutely. Although you do have to remember the metaphor is not the thing. <laughs> the kangaroo <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, another thing, it feels like a party trick, but I really love helping people with forced metaphors. So if you're really stuck, how do you get your brain out of the ruts that you've been thinking, which clearly aren't working because you haven't come up with a solution. So giving somebody um, or asking them to go outside and find, asking them to go outside and find three things is even better because then they get outside, which in itself can you know shift things. But you, you bring back a, a, a pine cone and say, you know, how is it like a pine cone? And of course they boggle at you because it's not at all like a pine cone, <laughs> but then they apply themselves to it and they always infallibly come up with some insight that they hadn't seen before. And I think that that is beneficial in a number of different ways. One, it can give you an insight that will solve your problem. I mean, it happens all the time. So on a practical sort of transactional level, that's great. But the second thing, which I think is even more powerful, is that it makes you feel so resourceful because you know now you never, ever need to be stuck. If you are stuck on something, all you have to do is get away from your desk, go outside, grab something, go, right, how's this? And that is incredibly empowering, I think. Mm. So that's one of the things that I hadn't quite understood before I did the, the business school course that the metaphor could do for people. And I'm quite evangelical about sharing it now. There you are. So now we've got an hour's training on metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we'll get up to 32 hours before the end of the show. <laughs> You said something about going outside. I think there's also something there about moving at all, isn't there? Because mm. because when we get stuck, we freeze. I think, and then and then it's really hard to do anything. Right. And that's why moving your arm is yes. the beginning of movement, isn't it? Yes. You're not. You're no longer sitting paralysed in the headlights. You're you're actually doing something, and maybe it's mm. not. Yeah, it's quite a small movement, but it's still mark making which is why it's so much more powerful than just tapping on a keyboard because it's so much more direct. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I'm a huge fan. I think, I think, you know, I, I run every day and, you know, I, that, that's, I, I have all my best ideas when I'm sort of out running and I combine that with writing quite a lot. So I'll often write when I come back. Um, yeah, they work very well together. You don't take a notebook in your pocket. No, I don't take a notebook. I do have my phone in my pocket and I have been known to stand still in the middle of a field and record a dictaphone. dictaphone. Oh, that's A voice head, message. Yes, to myself, one of them. Yeah. Yes, mm. I do that. Usually when there's a dog walker coming the opposite direction, who <laughs> just gives me a kind of a look. I think it's important to have no shame in these situations. You the idea is more important. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and is what I'm the- saying is incoherent. <laughs> Please don't listen. <laughs> Maybe I should get them to join in. Handy. <laughs> so, give me a metaphor for this. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the dog walkers I walk past might go, what are you talking about? <laughs> Although I have started walking a dog and uh, not my dog, somebody else's dog. And that's given me all sorts of insight, interestingly. Mm. Um, following. Following it's a my- dog. My dog follows from the front, which always makes me laugh. She's she's following me, but she needs to be in the front. And I always think that's quite interesting in terms of being a leader from the behind. <laughs> How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. So, Alison, in a year's time, what would you like your book to have done? I 
would love people to be in organizations, managers, leaders to be bulk buying this and giving it to their people and saying, look, you know, you are facing so much stuff. And yes, we are providing coaching and yes, we are providing providing well-being and stuff. But there is this really simple thing that you can just do as a practice for yourself. And you can't do it wrong. <laughs> and I don't need to see what you're doing. And you're doing it offline and you're doing it off grid. And just go for it and see what happens. That's what I would love. I would love to be delivering more workshops and just teaching people this, going into schools, teaching kids. Because I think what a great life skill. You know, I wish somebody had told me this years ago. Yeah. yeah, it's like I used to be a maths teacher. And I think. Did you? Yeah, once. No, not only once, but for a while. <laughs> Just wait once. I didn't like it. Came out. <laughs> Actually, my issue was when you're teaching algebra to year four again, or year six, or year ten, or whatever it is. You just, I was great on the first iteration, but when it was the same thing the next time, I found it much, much more boring. Mm. But you know, what they things- did too, to be fair. Yes, I'm sure they did. <laughs> That's a completely different subject. But one of the things that I I noticed was that people didn't really understand why learning maths was a good thing. And then they're trying to measure up for something or trying yeah. to work out. So we had a guy here measuring up for a, a, a sail awning frame in the garden. You know, that's why you need to learn trigonometry mm-hmm. because it's only when you learn trigonometry that you can actually work out what the size of all the bits and pieces need to be. And it's the same, isn't it? We don't really taught why we need to learn to write. Yeah. And I think when people are taught to write, they they are taught to, to perform. They're taught to get the apostrophes in the right place and use their vocabulary. And I mean, the grammar stuff that they have to do now is just crazy. I, I, you know, anyway, don't get me started on that. They're not taught that this is for you. You know, it's not for the teacher. This is this is a skill for you and it will help you think and process your experience and come up with good ideas and be more creative. You know, if if you allowed kids to do that, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we want you in primary schools, Alison. Yeah, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's mostly secondary schools that I've spoken to because I think that they, you're less you have less of a filter anyway in a primary school. You know, they have yeah. less trouble saying what they think. Yeah. But I think you start really second guessing yourself and comparing yourself and being uncertain about your ability to cope mm. as you get older. Mm. And this is a great resource for that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not creative writing and it's not writing a no. subject. No, absolutely not. Mm. Although it's a great way of creative writing, actually. Um, you know, if you want to take it in that direction, and I've, I've done that with people as well, but that's not really my bag. It is much more about, it's, the, it's self-coaching. That is yeah. what it is, really. Yeah. I would say as well, as, a, as an organisational tool, it has huge benefits because so often when we, when we are talking and only talking, the people who dominate the room are the confident talkers and they are often the highest um, ranking person in the room. They're often blokes. <laughs> uh, they're often native English language speakers and they're often extroverts and activists and people who com- feel confident thinking as they talk. That isn't everybody. In fact, it's not even most people. So if you were to start a meeting 
with a couple of minutes of exploratory writing to think about the subject in hand, where people were allowed to write in their own language. Visual thinkers could draw it out rather than writing. Reflectors could have that time to just process their thinking. You would end up with much a much richer pool of insights to draw on, I think. And you would hear the voices that so often don't get heard. Mm-hmm. And also you wouldn't be anchoring the conversation. You know, the first person to speak has that effect of kind of anchoring the discussion and then everybody kind of falls in line behind it. Um, whereas if if you've got six people in a room and six people are, are then invited to share what's come up for them, then you have six starting points and it's a much better um, range of ideas on which to draw. And the other five don't forget. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And the other five don't feel, well, there's no point in me being here because nobody ever listens to me anyway. I never get a chance mm. to speak. Mm. Mm. So I think there's a real role for it in inclusion as well. I often get people when they go away for a break to come back and we do a kind of mini extra plenary so that the people who've had the reflectors have got time to catch up. But I really like that. Mm. It's a good way of starting as well. as, And that's why I call it exploratory writing rather than reflective writing. Yeah. Because you... You can do it at any point. <laughs> you can do it at the start of your thinking, midway through to so just clear up, you know, it's, it's just whenever you need it, it's there. Mm. And, and it's, it's not, a simple thing. And it's not a mini agenda, is it? It's not a bullet point of these are the things we need to cover in this meeting. No, absolutely not. And my kind of go-to is what's really important here. You know, if I don't, you always need a prompt. I always need a prompt to get started, really. And mm. it, it's not... And maybe that's the difference with creative writing that you, um, I know the morning pages um, practice of Julia Cameron, which is wonderful. And and I've done, you know, which is beautiful, but you are starting with a sort of a blank page and you're just starting to un- unburden what's on your mind. Um, there's definitely, the, uh, that's a very, very powerful practice. And <laughs> I think mine is more pragmatic. Mm. It's more, there's something in front of me and I need a bit of space to think about it so you don't have to do it first thing in the morning when you have sleep <laughs> and you don't start with the blank page and it doesn't have to be three sides of a4 or whatever it, it's just finding the question in whatever's in front of you and exploring that mm. Mm. so alison how do people find your book and just remind us what it's called it's called exploratory writing everyday magic for life and work and it's sold wherever books are sold. <laughs> you should be able to get it anywhere, um, you know, in bookshops and online and so on. And um, it also comes with a discount offer course, a 28-day um, exploratory writing sort of adventure. So if if you would like to embed that kind of writing as a sort of practice in your life, then that's, I think, helpful, not just having the book, but but also, you know, the, the course has a sort of daily prompt and a way of exploring the different areas of the of the book to, um, including metaphor, <laughs> but there's only seven days on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I haven't got that much of an issue about metaphor. <laughs> so, Alison, what a delight to talk to you about your book, Exploratory Writing. And, of course, uh, you're publishing the next book that I'm writing. Tell me about that, Claire. <laughs> it's great. I get to promote my book and your book. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so I'm writing it together with a coach called Lucia Baldelli. And after a huge amount of help from you and an enormous amount of angst, we finally have a title, which Yay! is the, the Human Behind the Coach. It was worth waiting for. Yeah, definitely. And, and the news is that you don't know, Alison, is that Lucia and I have decided to spend the last two weeks before we do the beta edit together 
Oh, brilliant. Oh, that would be fantastic. Just to really immerse yourselves in it. Which sadly is in Italy. Would you like somebody <laughs> to come and carry your luggage? I have had so many volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> Can't begin to tell you. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So it's exciting to be working in partnership with you around that. And you've been fabulous so far and we haven't submitted anything to you yet. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the first draft. Yes. Nearly there. Nearly there. Nearly there. Uh, so Alison Jones, author of Exploratory Writing, Everyday Magic for Life and Work. Thank you very much for coming to the Coaching Inn. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd love you to share the podcast with a friend or leave a comment on social media. And if you'd like to become a regular at the Coaching Inn, you can subscribe on Podbean and all major podcast channels. We look forward to welcoming you next time. You've been listening to The Coaching In, 3D Coaching's virtual pub. For more information, check out 3dcoaching.com.